Hi, I'm Chris, and I have the disease of addiction. Today, I'm in remission of my addiction, and I have been for multiple years. I was an active addict for eight years of my life. So what is this addiction? Well, that's what we're going to be understanding over the next few sessions that we're going to have together. But I'm sure that it's quite surprising for me to introduce myself as somebody who suffers the disease of addiction. I have the disease of addiction. Today, I am Chris, a recovering addict in remission of his disease for numerous years. Understanding Addiction, Season 1, Episode 1. So let me try and explain what I just said. I've just admitted that I have the disease of addiction and I am now in recovery. I'm in remission. Well, this is what I believe and I have come to understand what addiction is. When we're born, most of us have some form of addiction in our genetic makeup. And the genetic makeup is, yes, it's a lot to do who we are, what our, how our body functions, and all those sort of things. But this also comes with genetic history, as in our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, our parents. And most of us have some form of addictive gene, and that is what is in our genetic makeup. For me, I didn't even begin to know that or understand that. And I think it's important to understand that because everything else that we're going to talk about from here is going to make sense. It is not my fault that I have the disease of addiction. But what I have to take responsibility for is how I activated the addiction with drugs and alcohol. I chose to use drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, whatever it was, to escape what had happened to me in my past, that the disease of addiction then became active. It was dormant, and then it became active. And so, that is where my story begins. Like you, I'm sure, before I became an addict, uh, and uh, well, should I say an active addict, I looked at alcoholics and other drug addicts and people who couldn't control themselves as weak and pathetic and really get over yourself and really just stop. I didn't realize at that point in time it wasn't just a matter of willpower. It was bigger than that. It was something that I have now come to understand as a very serious mental illness that is known as addiction. Just for the record, the World Health Organization actually have addiction registered as a disease. And I'm going to explain more about that as we go along in our sessions. The perception of, of addiction in everything, in everything that we see or watch in movies or watch on television programs, the perception of addicts or junkies, as they know, or drunks, are just seen as really bad people, dropouts, and just people who are unable to deal with life. They use words like junkie and drunk and smackheads and all these things that are used that derive 
what people are when they are sick with this addiction disease. Well, the irony of it is that I used to feel exactly the same. I used to just think that those people are, are, are pathetic, but I became one of those people. And I never, ever thought that I would. I never planned to become an addict. Sure, when I first started, I, I had fun. I mean, you know, people were offering me uh, marijuana, uh, a couple of shots here of uh, mixed alcohols and have a puff of this and have a puff of that. And uh, I enjoyed it. I will tell you, I, I enjoyed it. It made me feel good. It made me feel really good. But I'm going to go into more detail later in the series about what actually happened. But the problem is that while I was having such a great time, I had activated my dormant disease addiction. And then it became highly active. There are many people today who, who I know, and uh, I've met some of them as well, who never intended to become an addict, a junkie, a drunk as it's perceived to be. I'll give you some of the names and you're going to recognize some of them and some of them you're not. And I'm going to explain to you what is the difference. So here are the names. Robert Dowry Jr., Ben Athlick, Drew Barrymore, Eric Clapton, Samuel L. Jackson, Sir Elton John, Lady Gaga, and Anthony Hopkins, and these are just a few. And here are the people I've met in my recovery. I know James, he's a doctor. Chris, he's an executive producer for a film company. Pandora, a wife and a mother. Richard, a businessman. David, a pilot. William, an ex-prisoner and a gang member, well, was a gang member. Sarah, a celebrity chef. Lawrence, Uber driver. Katie, production manager. Andrew, a waiter. Sheldon, gang member, but in prison. And Debbie, an old friend of mine who was a model who's now dead. So what happened to these people? What happened to these people who were like you and me? Just a small heads up. Addiction does not have any boundaries. Does not see color, race, creed, wealth, poverty, or beliefs. It is a devastating disease that anyone can potentially have. So how do I know this? Well, I know this because I became an active addict for eight years and I couldn't see how this happened or how to get out of it. No threats or bad, terrible consequences or even imprisonment would be able to help me, not even my own willpower. Sure, I liked what I did, it was great fun, but could I actually ever see myself as becoming that junkie, that drunk, that smackhead? I didn't. What happened to myself and these people who are like you and me? We had a disease that was dormant from our birth through the genes in our bodies, in our DNA, that meant we had a dormant disease called addiction. I hope that by listening to these podcasts, you will truly begin to understand what the disease of addiction really is. So let me start by introducing myself to you, who I am and why we're sitting here listening to this. 
I'm going to start off by telling my story. If you can, while you're listening to this story, just please, just keep an open mind as best you can. And if you're able, look at the similarities to what I'm talking about in my story to your own childhood and youth. Some of the things that have happened to you that might have caused you pain or shame or some form of suffering that seems to be constantly nagging at you. Addiction is a disease, a condition that we are born with. It is dormant until these painful events that I've been speaking about and you're going to hear on my story that are difficult sometimes to understand and cope with. So we start to look for a way to escape. These are what is known as addictional activities, the things we use to escape. So before I go any further, I'm going to let you hear my story. Addiction is one thing that its deception was so incredible that you think you're going to get away with it. And the denial element that comes in is part of that mixture of deception. And I always call it the line of addiction because we can have, be having a heck of a good time here. And slowly, while you're having what you think is a great time, the addiction line slowly passes under you and the next thing, you are in it. But because of the deception, you don't see it. So you're just in denial, saying, no, I don't have a problem. I was like that, I didn't have a problem. But I was using every day, but I didn't have a problem. I was out in the streets and I didn't have a problem. They had a problem, they were worse, not me. I wasn't that bad. And it wasn't till I was involved with somebody who died from overdose that I realized maybe there is something bad here, maybe. And when somebody else pointed out to me, do you do this, do you do this, do you do this? And I said, yeah, so what? So what, is that normal? But normal for me that day was sick. Uh, my father, who was uh, in the city, never uh, really um, was involved. He would leave early in the morning, come back late at night. So I, I didn't see much of him, but he was somebody I really respected for who he was and what he had achieved, and he had done very well. And so had my family uh, overall, had all done very well, and then there was me. And I, um, at school, did not do well. I um, did it appallingly. I, I had dyslexia, which people didn't really understand at that point in time. And um, I wouldn't have liked myself uh, because I was a wet. I didn't have any strength. And that's a lot to do with my upbringing. Then I was sent to uh, a special school, which was down to sort of uh, 20 students. It was meant to specialize in uh, education improvement for dyslexia. Uh, and that's when a few things started to happen as far as adults' interference in my life. And one was I was sexually abused by two separate teachers. Um, I had no idea there was, it was wrong. It, it was, for me, age seven, it was just, uh, 
I don't know, I just maybe saw it as love. I was, it was extraordinary. And then um, we, ha we had a very sadistic headmaster who enjoyed beating the boys for any chance and any reason that he had. And the beatings were... Uh, he would bring you into his room and he'd open up his cupboard. He said, choose the shoe that you want. And uh, you would choose the shoe, usually the tacky, the gym shoe. And you've got to realize that he was six foot and a half, six and a half foot, which is tall for a seven-year-old. He'd take that, bend you over, and hit you. And all of this sort of thing slowly took me out. With everything that had happened to me in the past, I had really started to rebel against life. Um, and with that, I smoked at school. It was part of being part of the right team, right guys. Um, it was exciting. Uh, we used to go out into the forests and have hoodies up and, and rush into the forest and sit there and smoke and it was, it was, I was part of something and it felt good. Um, and I wasn't the goody-goody. Uh, I enjoyed that rebel bit of it. And my behavior had come about and obviously with all that sort of stuff, I wasn't being totally honest either. So uh, in the end, I, I left the school. Uh, I definitely had a stronger belief in myself, whatever that might have been. Academically, I did terribly. I didn't pass anything of any subset. I got O-levels, sure. But uh, even that, they weren't great passes. So my next adventure was to go to Australia, which I went to for a year on a voluntary services. And... Um, I ended up on a cattle and sheep station, and uh, that was amazing. That was really good fun. I mean, that again was the, I suppose I was looking for the sort of butch look of being a jackaroo. It was cowboy on horses and Marlboro men and things like that. That's, that's what I was looking for, you know, and it was really cool and motorbikes. And uh, that was very cool. And of course there I learned how to drink and we drank a lot uh, because there's not a lot else you can do there. And uh, anyway, I came back and I got into uh, the audiovisual industry. And from that, uh, I uh, found my talent. And it was a, it was a God-given gift, uh, which was basically sound. And I got into the recording studios in London and it was fantastic. And of course, by being in the recording studios and in the what is now the film industry, there were a lot of drugs around. And I got introduced to uh, marijuana and then speed and then cocaine. And uh, it was all being part of this thing of being part of a group of people that just look cool. And that's really what I was after more than anything else. Never in my life did I think that I would end up where I did. I was just having fun. And uh, anyway, so time moved on and uh, slowly with the progression of all this was uh, 
the cocaine and the marijuana wasn't enough, and I got introduced to heroin, which I was very scared of. It was the big H. And I thought, I'm not going to touch that. And then just one night, uh, a friend of mine said, I'm off to score. Uh, would you want to come with? So I came in and I walked into this room and there were all these guys and they were the heavies. They were the heavies of things. And I thought, this is, this is cool. This is, this is where I want to be. I was really rebelling against society, my family, everything. And uh, I, took a, I took a toot at that time. I chased the dragon on, on uh, some heroin I was given and I felt incredible. And then I promptly went and vomited. Uh, and, and I thought, oh, well, I won't do that again. Needless to say, six months later, I got into it again. And then it all sort of became quite a thing with friends. Uh, we used to do it on a Saturday night. And uh, that was cool, it was all great. And then it became Friday and Saturday night. And uh, that was okay, that was okay. And then, then it became every other night. And then every night, uh, but that was okay, you know, for me, that, that, there was nothing wrong. But uh, I was changing. I was changing as a person, I was losing weight. I was being incredibly dishonest. My behavior and my irrationality and my anger was just getting greater. Uh, my survival modes were kicking in of how to survive to make sure that I got what I needed as far as drugs were concerned. And so I just, um, I just literally would prepare my day of knowing how I was going to get the money, how I was going to score, where I was going to score, and making sure that I could. And my life was surrounded by um, getting and using. And that is really what happened. And when I couldn't get that, I would get drunk. And uh, this went on for quite a few years. Um, I was spending all my money until I had literally nothing. My family had no idea what was going on. My father's position didn't really... I think they were all in denial more than anything else, as I was. I was in complete denial that I had a problem. And yet I was using every day. And I also lost my job uh, in, the sound, in the sound studios. Um, I would try to do freelancing. Uh, and I just had some people who just were good to me and just kept me going as far as the job was concerned, but that didn't last. And then in the end, I was out. Um, and I ended up in all-night cinemas in Leicester Square with all the other addicts and, and uh, alcoholics, tramps. And I thought they were really bad because I'd sit in the cinema and look at them and go, God, they're bad, because they had all the the usual really cheap wine and everything, and they were badly dressed. And, and this is what was going through, and I was judging them and comparing myself to them and making myself feel better over them. And yet I was leaving the cinema every, towards the end, every half hour, just to use and feel normal. So that's where it got to. I was literally in the gutter. And I was using... Um, anything and everything, and I was stealing to... I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't care what I did to everybody around me. I didn't care what I did to the people who I was stealing from. It was all about me. It was all about my addiction, and that was it. 
My family had uh, clearly didn't want me to be around because I was not nice. And uh, and by the grace of God, I was introduced to the 12-step program, which I laughed at initially because I couldn't work out why on earth you'd want to have a higher power because I I didn't believe in God. And uh, as I was told, it didn't matter. You just had to have something bigger than you. Well, the biggest thing in me was me. And so far, I had done a pretty bad job of of me. So I uh, went to rehab and I got myself in and I thought I'd just go in there and clean out. I just wanted to try and stop. I'd tried to stop on my own before and I couldn't. I might have stopped for three months and had a huge celebration and thought I'd just do it once. And once wasn't enough and then I had again and again and I was back to where I was. In fact, worse than where I was from when I tried to stop the first time. It was just harder and harder to stop. And I was in the rehab for three months and it was a nightmare. But there was one day where I was in absolute agony from withdrawals. And I hadn't slept for 10 days. I was exhausted and I was in physical pain and I'd had enough. And I was weak. And uh, they had a a small theater off the rehab, which used to be an old chapel. And I just wanted to go in there and and, uh, sit for a while. And I did. And uh, having gone in there on my own, it was like a relief in some aspects just to take time out from the program that I was on in the, in the rehab, which was quite aggressive. And I sat there silently and, and, I, and I just sat there and I just said, how on earth did I get here? And then, I just got on my knees because I didn't know anything else to do. I just got on my knees and I sat there for a while on my knees. And then I finally said, well, who are you? Because if you're there, please just help me. Just take this, whatever it is. And I remember saying that. I remember saying that very clearly. And after a while, I got up and I left. And uh, I went and carried on with the rehab. But from that day onwards, something very extraordinary happened that I know happened because it's, it's affected me for the rest of my life. That moment, God allowed me to sleep for an hour. And that was like having a whole night's sleep. And then it turned into two hours, then it turned into three, and then four. Four was enough. Four was right enough for me from not having anything. And the most incredible thing was my craving had left. I never had to this day, from that moment, another craving. It had gone. However, I still had addiction and I knew that. So I left the rehab and uh, I learned about the 12-step program. And in the, in the rehab, and, and I knew that I had a higher power. I got into a higher power, and it was something bigger than me. And I said, well, if it's God, it's God. So it must be something bigger than me. And I didn't really understand God. But I worked on the higher power for a long, long time. And I worked on the steps. I did 90 meetings in 90 days. 
best thing I ever did. Best thing I ever did. Today, no problem because I, I have that relationship with Jesus. And, and that is what's changed my life. My higher power also changed my life because it was Jesus all the time. But I had to find out who my higher power was. And in that process, he revealed himself to me. But I understand that I just, anybody thinking, oh, I don't want to be part of that. You don't have to be part of that. What you do have to be a part of is a program that is proven in helping addicts find the bridge to normality in life and away from active addiction. And the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, you name it, they all are working and they are all over the world. Then suddenly an opportunity to leave the meeting, leave England and come to South Africa. And uh, I arrived in South Africa and there was no meetings. And uh, I actually arrived in 1982 and I went to meetings. I went to the AA meetings and they were fantastic. I had my first birthday in a meeting in Johannesburg and it was fantastic and everybody loved it. But the one thing they said, please don't bring up drugs. Uh, we deal with alcohol here. So this became a little bit of a problem and to the point they suggested that I started my own meeting. So uh, Narcotics Anonymous started in South Africa in a treatment center in the, in the uh, north of Joburg. And it had to be in a treatment center. Uh, it wasn't allowed to be uh, autonomous because in those days legislation said in South Africa two or more addicts meeting together is illegal. So I met in the, we got the treatment center and it worked and it grew. Um, and I was going to those meetings every day. And uh, my strength in that grew and grew and grew. But the biggest thing that really helped me was helping others. Uh, because by helping others I could see myself and reminding me who I was because I didn't want to go back there again. And the other thing about the 12-step program was that I began to understand what my addiction was. And uh, I married and uh, had a fantastic, I was very much in love with my first wife, but I was traveling a lot and unfortunately she left me for somebody else, which was really tough. And uh, it takes two to, to stuff up a marriage. And I think my behavior, I hadn't dealt with him properly. And I had a terrible anger. And yeah, I think if I was married to me, I would probably have left me for somebody else. So I carried on and uh, I was running my film company, which I had started a company in South Africa. And uh, it was a lot of pressure. And then I had a heart attack. And during that heart attack, I was offered morphine. I actually didn't know I was given morphine because I was almost in a coma. But when I came around, I recognized the feeling and it was terrifying because I knew I liked it. I knew I liked it. And while in ICU, um, in the second day, the nurse came up and said, would you like a painkiller? Because I was in pain, I said, yes, I would. And uh, when they gave it to me, I realized again, this was pethidine. 
And I was, I so knew that feeling and it was good. But it was terrifying because I did not want to go back there. And I had to make a decision there whether I was going to just lie in hospital and be fed on pethidine or whether I needed to actually just deal with my addiction. I got tested. And only by the strength of my recovery and the fellowship and the meetings, I was able to say no. And my other addiction, which I didn't realize until I got onto the recovery course and started running it, was the one course which was the starters. We had groups and we had to put a sex addicts group together and we had to put them in their own group initially and somebody had to run it. And so timidly I went in and run that group in the recovery course. And it was amazing, it was absolutely amazing. And I found this with all the groups in the recovery course, not only the stories that are told on the videos before you start, but it was just the, the sincerity of Nigel giving his talks on the videos were just enlightening and Jesus-driven. And uh, so I sat in this sex addicts group looking at all the guys and saying so, and it was mind-blowing, the honesty that came out. And it was really, really, really deep honesty about addiction of, of, this, of uh, the sex addiction. I realized I had a problem when after the second week running, I'm sitting there going, so what's wrong with that? And, um, and it was bad. And I then began to realize a lot of my behavior and value for women was not true. It was based on sex rather than a true love relationship. And I thought sex was love as I knew it, because I'd never really learned about what love was. And so that group was mind-blowing. I had gained so much from realizing that my addiction wasn't just alcohol and drugs and uh, gambling, it was sex. I, I know that um, if anybody said you must go to church and meet Jesus to recover, I would have run. Uh, I, I, hadn't, I had an allergic reaction to Christian people. Um, I didn't like them, they were too good, or they were too smiley, or they were too unrealistic, and they didn't understand life. That's what I thought. And so if anybody had come to me and said, right, you're coming to a recovery course and it's in a church, I would have been very, very suspicious. Yeah, I, I would be totally understanding of why people wouldn't want to come to a recovery course because it's Jesus, it's, it, they think it's Jesus. It's a Christian-based program which you can choose to use Jesus if you want, otherwise you're higher power. And it's, it's amazing. It really is the most amazing program I have ever had in my life. And I just know that if everybody got onto the 12-step program, it would be a better world. And, and that is what the recovery course has based itself on, is strength, hope, uh, and your experience. And my experience with the 12-step program and the recovery course is unseen lives change. So that's my story. Uh, one that was recorded uh, a couple of years ago 
uh, for a course that I run, which is called the Recovery Course, for people to hear other people's experiences, strengths and hopes. Unfortunately, my story is one that many can't tell. Why? Well, because they're still in the grip of addiction and haven't yet found a way out. Or they're in prison, or in an institution, or most likely they're dead. I've lost many friends and associates from this horrific disease. And that's because most of us, if not all of us, never really understood what addiction really was. We just thought it was a passing thing. Uh, uh, the people who are just idiots who just get caught up in it, not realizing that it was already part of my DNA. So all the people I read out to you, all the actors and singers and friends of mine, they all got caught in addiction. And most of them are in remission because they've come to understand their disease and what happened. Something I hope that we're going to learn that you won't have to go down because you become more aware of what this disease is that is so sneaky. So sneaky. Today I'm no longer ashamed of my addiction or my behavior from my addiction because I know that I'm not that person that I was when I was an active addict. But today, I'm in remission of my disease. I'm free from this activity that constantly kept on needing more from me. I'm free from it. And I've made a decision each day that I'm going to remain in remission. Keep my disease in remission. In the next episode, I'm going to be talking more about what is addiction and really go down to the detail of what addiction is. And this is something I was never explained. Something nobody knew how to explain. And the one thing I really, really hope is by me explaining this, like so many other recovering addicts, will help you make a very, very, very important choice when you are offered some form of drug, alcohol, or excess in alcohol, excess in drugs, excess in pornography, and so it goes on. I hope that these talks that we're gonna go through are gonna be enlightening to you and hopefully a lifesaver. I'll see you in the next episode.